It is funny, I was uh, reading a friend's Facebook post and he was talking about how the Holy Spirit straightens out our wonky prayers. So, uh, yeah. Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes for us. Uh, and uh, yes, anyway, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Jesus knew what we were asking at that point. We are starting a new series this morning. Uh, we've called it The King. And if you've been with us at Trinity Church Brighton, we've continued uh, to preach uh, systematically through the Gospel of Luke over many years. And the part we're looking at this year uh, is the, the immediate chapters coming up to uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And uh, we've called it the King because really Jesus is going to Jerusalem as God's King. And so we're going to be exploring together over these, uh, over really the first term, uh, what it means to know Christ as king. But as you know, kings rule over nations. And I thought we'd actually start with a little bit of a, uh, a quiz. I'm going to show you some national dresses, okay? And your job is to uh, pick uh, what country is being represented here. So first one, uh, there you have it. Okay, what country are we talking about here? What country is this? Anyone? Germany. It is the German national dress. Aren't you glad you're not German here this morning? Okay, what about these guys? I reckon these guys are way cooler. Okay. Uh, Argentina's close. Uh, I think I heard it in here. Chile. Yeah, but I think the Argentina's kind of, it's the poncho that really gives it away, isn't it? You've got to love a poncho. Got to love a poncho. What about these guys? Okay, or these ladies. Anyone? New Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and these ones here? Okay, we've got Japan. Okay. You can distinguish these these nationalities. You can distinguish like in the in the in the old days, you could distinguish which which kingdom they were part of because of what they look like, their their features and their dress. And we're talking this morning about King Jesus. But the problem with Jesus is that the Bible tells us that his kingdom is over every nation, tribe, people and language. So how do you spot a subject of King Jesus? Now, I want to suggest this morning that thankfulness is the or one of the key national dresses of the subjects of King Jesus. I would like to suggest that Christians of all people should be characterized by giving thanks. Now I need to ask you, is that true? And if it's not, what does that mean? Because in our culture, I don't think people would look around, uh, let's speak about mainstream Anglo culture, I don't think uh, we would be characterised as a nation in Australia of thankful people. We call ourselves the lucky country, but are we really thankful? Are we people perhaps who pray the prayer of Bart Simpson? Dear God... We paid for this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Do we see ourselves as self-made men and women, so why should we give thanks? Or are we perhaps a group like me 
who just love that low-grade grumble. It's not that we never say thank you. But you get in the car, you're driving to work, you, you're whinging about the traffic, and then that wretched song comes on, and that person, that person on the radio, you just think, oh. And then you walk in, and then your boss meets you. <laughs> on, on, on. Maybe, maybe you don't go to work. Maybe your work is in the home, and, and once again, your husband has, oh, you know? Or the kids, oh, you know? You don't, you don't do that, do you? Okay? Well, I do. Anyway. Are we characterised by thankfulness? Now, we're going to explore that this morning uh, from the passage that Karen read for us. Uh, you probably all grumbled about me getting the Bible prayer wrong, didn't you? No, oh, he's done it again. Okay, I grumbled that my wife dissed me in front of the congregation. Okay, I'll just remind her I've got 30 minutes up here and you don't. Uh, but anyway, our four points this morning. Graceful king, thankful subject the danger of belonging and cultivating a thankful heart. Now, we've been looking at the trip that Jesus makes. If you're familiar with Luke's gospel, really the opening bit of Luke's gospel, the first couple of chapters is about his birth, okay, chapters one and two. And then Luke jumps for us till Jesus is about 30 years old and goes to his baptism. And from chapter three through to halfway along chapter nine, the main question Luke is trying to help us answer is, who is this guy? And by the end of that section, you have Peter's pronouncement. You may remember it, where he says, you are God's king. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And then Luke, in the way that he's put his gospel together, he gives us a journey from Galilee up in the north to Jerusalem in the south that spans from chapter 9 to chapter 19 that answers the question, if Jesus is God's king, what does it mean to follow him? And so that is what we're looking at. And we're looking this morning at the graceful king. Okay? At the time that it approached for him to be taken up to heaven. This is chapter 9. Jesus set out for Jerusalem. And here we have Jesus along the way. So I'm having some little glitches here. So you'll see me sort of turn. Now on his way to Jerusalem, this is our passage for today, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria, Samaria and Galilee. Now, you may not be familiar with ancient Judean uh, geography, but there's a map. Okay, uh, you can see up in the north is Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem right down the bottom here. Galilee uh, was where Jesus' hometown, Capernaum. He was born in Nazareth, but probably grew up in Capernaum. Uh, that's there, and he's travelling down. Now, in Australia's terms, um, Galilee is kind of like, if you think about the eastern states, because there's three that line up, Galilee is kind of like Queensland, uh, so you think about Queensland, you think they're kind of nice, a little bit, a little bit backwards, and if you speak slowly, they kind of understand you. Yeah, you get that, okay? They're a bit of a cultural backwater, Queensland. Sorry, any Queenslanders? All my family's from Queensland, okay? That's there. And, and then down the south, and, and if you were a Melbourneian today, you'd be resonating with this. You'd go, yes, we have the holy city, Jerusalem, Melbourne. Okay, and the promised land, Victoria, that's how they see themselves anyway, uh, that is there. Uh, that's why they want to be, build, 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 build big walls around them, 
we build big walls to keep them in. They want to keep us out. But there you have the holy city down the south, Jerusalem. And then you've got the group in the middle that both groups love to hate. Uh, New South Wales, Samaria. Okay? Uh, the Queenslanders kind of go, New South Wales. The Victorians look at them and go, and they hate both groups anyway. And so you have these three groups in ancient uh, Palestine. The Galileans, the people in the south, viewed them as hicks. They were just, you know, you might remember the start of John's gospel, Nathaniel, when he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, he's like, nah, (laughs) the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, like, as if. Uh, And then you have the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were kind of half Jewish and half something else. And they kind of had a half Jewish religion. And the Jews hated them. They absolutely despised them. And here Jesus is on the borderlands between Galilee and Samaria. And what do we see? Why is the king of Israel there? What's he got to do with these people? If you read through the Gospels, though, Jesus surprises us. His rule is for everyone. He is there for the righteous and the wicked. He's there for the Jew and the Gentile, the insider and the outsider, the healthy and the sick. And as we will see in this morning, the clean and the unclean. We see that he blesses everyone who comes to him. So these 10 people come up. He doesn't bargain with them. He doesn't say, no, you've got to jump through all these hoops and then I'll bless you. There's no quibbling, no demands. They ask, he responds. And one thing we see about this king is his blessing is abundant. The lepers come looking for healing. But one of them finds so much more. So let's move on to those lepers. At the start of our story, we meet 10 lepers. Jesus is walking into this village and on the edge of the village, because the lepers couldn't go into the village, on the edge, 10 men who had leprosy met him. And they stood at a distance because they weren't allowed to come close. And they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, Have pity on us. I don't know if you know much about leprosy. Now, when the Bible uses leprosy, it's not necessarily talking about the medical condition that we know today as leprosy or Hansen's disease. Uh, It was a coverall that covered skin diseases. Okay? And in those days, to be diagnosed with these skin diseases, which came under that coverall of leprosy, was to be given the sentence of death. You went to the doctor today, and if you had blood tests, and we've just heard Simon talk about his friends, you've got those you've got weird symptoms, and you're kind of thinking, ah, oh, you're thinking, I hope it's not cancer. But in this day, leprosy was the living death. To be diagnosed with leprosy would mean that you could never... Kiss your spouse again. You could never hug your kids. 
You could never sit around the table at a family occasion. You couldn't go to your parents' funeral. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't gather in the synagogue. You were excluded from every part of the society's life. If you want to read about it, in Leviticus 13 and 14, there's all these rules that cover what the lepers can do. And if you were a leper, you had to wear torn clothes. You had to cover the lower half of your face. You kept your hair unkempt. And if anyone came close to you, you had to call out, unclean, unclean, for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. And so Jesus meets these ten desperate men. And they beg him. Jesus, master, have pity. Literally, show us mercy. They can't cure themselves. There is no hope for them. The only hope they have is this man that they seem to have heard about. They seem to know that something about Jesus means that he would be both willing and able to do something about their desperate situation. And so when Jesus sees them, he says, go, go show yourselves to the priest, which is what you did when you believed you'd been made clean. Jesus kind of seems to have jumped over the healing bit, doesn't he? It's kind of like they're on the way and they're like, what are you doing in town? We're we're going to the priest. We've been healed. Really? I think someone's playing a bad joke on you. But Jesus says, go, show yourself to the priest. Get the certificate that says you can join life again. And as they went, they were healed. They were cleansed. Jesus is asking them, do you believe that I can heal you? They didn't wait until it happened. They take Jesus at his word and they go. They show themselves to the priest, we assume, and certify that they can rejoin society. One writer says that healing meets them in the path of obedience. Wow. And that could be the story, this wonderful story, 10 men healed. But Luke tells us a little bit more. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. One of them. One of them on the way to the priest, on the way to be certified as clean. You can go and see your family. You can touch base with your friends. You can catch up with the life that you've been excluded from. But one of them goes, I've been healed. And he turns and he praises God and he falls at Jesus's feet. It's an image of someone worshipping a God Or showing respect and honour to a king. And this man knows he's healed because previously he stood at a distance. But now he goes to Jesus' feet and falls at Jesus' feet and thanks him. And Jesus makes a comment. 
He said, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except for this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise, go. Your faith has made you well. All ten were healed. And that's the word that's actually used in verse 15. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll actually see that as they go, they were healed. But when it comes back in verse 19, this man, Jesus literally doesn't say to him, your faith has made you well. He uses a different word here. Not the normal word that you would use for healing, but a word that comes up again and again in the Gospels. Literally, Jesus says this. He says, rise and go. Your faith has saved you. He doesn't say, your faith has made you well. The word saved, you can be saved from a disease, yes. But it's the word that describes salvation. I'd like to suggest that the nine found healing. Yes, the king blessed them. But what this one found was so much more. He had seen in Jesus the incredible grace and power of God, of God's king. And he had come back not just to thank him for what he had done, but he'd come back to join worshipping the king. It's an interesting little story and I think Luke gives it here because it highlights not just what a good response looks like but it gives us a warning which gives us our third point, the danger of belonging. Look at verse 16. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus identify this man as a foreigner? Why is he singled out he was in this borderland between Galilee and Samaria to find a Samaritan wasn't that unusual they were despised as I said corrupt form of Judaism that they followed and Jesus identifies him using a word that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with because when you walked into the temple in Jerusalem you would have walked past this sign. Now, remember, we live in an age that we are bombarded with signs. We see words and images everywhere we go. In this day, you wouldn't have seen as many signs as we see. You would have seen fairly few. And this sign, I I suppose your your Greek may not be up for it. Um, I found this difficult because they didn't leave any spaces between the words. Uh, But literally, what it means is... No stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. And whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. This is a sign at the gate of the temple that foreigners like this Samaritan could not draw close to the God of Israel. But here we have this Samaritan on his face at the feet of Jesus. It's amazing. But the fact that Jesus identifies this one as an outsider 
gives us insight that perhaps the other nine were insiders. They knew the law of Leviticus, the law of Moses that sent them to the priest. The Samaritans followed that as well. But these other nine were most likely Jewish because Jesus identifies the one as an outsider. And so what we have is this contrast between the grateful outsider and the ungrateful insider. And Jesus tells us that ten were healed, but one was saved. There's a warning here for us, particularly if you've been around church for a while. I was converted uh, out of a nominal Christian family back in the early 80s, you know, last century. And some of you have been Christians for longer than that, okay? But I'm coming up to 40 years in the faith, and given the fact that I'm only 27, I'm still working out how that is. But anyway, but the danger is, is that as you go on, it just becomes familiar. Grace is no longer amazing. Perhaps we are not inspired to thanks and praise, because we've heard it all our lives. Some of us, you've, you've grown up in church. You've always been hearing preachers banging on about the grace of God. You just go, yeah, okay, I've heard it. I know this. It doesn't move us. I want you to imagine, there's a few of us around uh, who are uh, familiar with this picture. Maybe you've, uh, you've been there yourself. Uh, maybe you've had the delight of, uh, of looking at a newborn, and there's a couple of us who are expecting. I want you to imagine uh, you've had a child, okay, and from the moment of that child's birth, the child doesn't look at you. There's that amazing moment, isn't that, where you connect with the newborn, but this one, it, it doesn't seem to want to know you. And as this child grows, they take from you, but they, they never give. So they never run up and they put their hands around you and go, I love you, mum, I love you, dad. You serve them, you lay yourself down for them, as parents do for children all the time. Again and again and again. And this child is like a black hole. It goes, but it never comes back. They take what you give. They never say, I love you. They never once Thank you. And when it comes time for them to leave home, they never look back. How would you feel if that was your child? A child is a monster. But can you see perhaps the analogy here? There are so many of us that live with an acknowledgement that God is there, but God's job is to serve us, to meet our needs. And perhaps when we call out to him, we expect him to respond. I heard, I was talking to a friend, and he shared a story with me, a true story about a cousin 
of his, who was an airline hostess back in the days where we called them hostess and not cabin crew. And uh, she was part of Saudi Air. Uh, She was on the route from Riyadh uh, to London. That was her route. She'd just go back and forth. And her aunt, uh, her mum, this guy's aunt, had flown to London to go shopping with her daughter when next time she flew into uh, to London. And she's in London and she gets a phone call from a friend saying, I've heard that the Saudi plane en route from Riyadh to London has blown up mid-flight. I thought I should check to see if your daughter was on that flight. And so the mum goes into panic, checks that was her daughter's flight. She prays. This is a lady who was deeply cynical about Christianity, um, this man, this friend told me. But she prayed. And she begged God. And then she found that the day before, one of her daughter's friends, another hostess, had swapped. And so her daughter was alive and well in Riyadh. Just hadn't told mum the day before texts and mobiles and all this kind of thing. And then that lady, Mike said, went about the rest of her life. God had granted her the life of her daughter. And she went around the rest of her life as if he didn't exist. There was no life of thanks. She just moved on. The Russian novelist, Fedor Dostoevsky, Dr. Esky, he said this, he's writing to men back in the 1800s, so ladies, please forgive the un-PC language. Gentlemen, let us suppose that man is not stupid. But if he's not stupid, he is monstrously ungrateful. Phenomenally ungrateful. In fact, I believe the best definition of man is the ungrateful biped. Now, this may not be us. We may be people who do say thanks to God. But the danger of familiarity, those nine men, they knew God's faithfulness to Israel from the scriptures, from Abraham and beyond. It was familiar. And so when they got what they wanted from Jesus, they went to the priest and they went about their lives. And it's only the outsider who came back and thanked Jesus and praised the Lord. There's another danger I'll just quickly go on to, and that's the danger of presumption. What did the ten men call out? Remember? Jesus, Master. How did the nine treat him? They don't treat him as a master. They treat him as a servant. His job is to heal them and then they just go about their business. It's only the one who acknowledges the grace and mercy of the king. And the danger is for us is that we use God to get what we want. It's God's job to sort out our life the way we want it to be. And so we pray and we ask him stuff. But we don't really want him. Jesus, master, have mercy. 
He does, and we go about our business. The daughter is saved from a horrible fate. And the mother may have thanked God, but went about her business. They got healed and went back to life. Great. Do we do the same? We call on God when we need him. And when we don't, we just, yeah, he's there in the background. He's on hold waiting for us. Or are we like this Samaritan that every day with the mercies of God, we are just so thankful. J.C. Ryle, uh, Bishop of Liverpool in the UK back in the 1800s, wrote this. He said, we are more than ready to pray, more ready to pray than to praise and more disposed to ask God for what we have not than to thank him for what we have. Is that true? Is that true? One of the things I love about big days is that we hear sometimes how God has marvellously answered prayers. And thank you, Jamie, this morning, you know, we pray, God answers. Thank you, Karen. We pray, God answers. We hear these things and it is good. And I would love if our big days was even more dominated with, thank you, God, you've answered these things. How do we find in our own life, is our prayer a list, but the thanks is really not quite there? It's a warning. Jesus shows us ten are healed, one is saved. And the heart of the true subject of the king is one that overflows with praise and thanks. So how do we cultivate a heart of thankfulness? Because it's not something that naturally comes to us. We're naturally self-centered. How do we actually overflow with grace, with praise to God for who he is and what he has done? Let me give you four points. True wonder. Do we actually see Jesus for who he is? As we read the Gospels, are we blown away? By this one, this God-man who walks among us. Do we see his power, his majesty, his love, his compassion? The one who holds the entire universe together by the word of his power. Who then gets down and says to the little children, come to me. Who goes to the outsider Who blesses the Samaritan? Do we see the wonder of the power and the grace of this one? There's an old song, some of you may remember, called The Servant King. We used to sing, Come see his hands and his feet, the scars that speak of sacrifice, hands that flung stars into space. To cruel nails surrendered. Do we see this? And are we amazed that Jesus, our master, served us? Do we not only see true wonder as we look at Christ, but do we despair? When we look at ourselves, do we see sin as the lepers saw their leprosy? 
Or do we look at ourselves and go, oh, there's a few minor blemishes, but mostly I'm okay? No, the Bible speaks of our sin like leprosy that leaves us dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Do we see that we have no hope other than to call out to Jesus, our master, to have mercy? Because when we see the desperate need that we have, it will overflow in thanks. When you are thirsty, the person who offers you a drink, thank you. When you are dead in your sins and transgressions, the person who offers their life on your behalf, how can we not overflow with thanks? I love this quote once again, J.C. Ryle. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well except upon a root of deep humility. If we see ourselves as okay... Jesus has kind of given us just a bit of a buff up. But if we see ourselves as lepers, outcast, the living dead, dead in our sins and transgressions, justly condemned as guilty before the righteous God, and then Christ steps in and takes our place and washes us clean and bears the penalty of our sin. There's no pride. There should only be thanks. We should overflow with true amazement that our defilement could be cleansed, that we are made clean through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Perfection defiled so that we, the defiled, could be made perfect. We read this. In Titus chapter 3, Paul wrote that Christ saved us, that God saved us through the washing of rebirth. The washing, we were washed clean and renewed by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Such a rich passage, a sermon in itself, but we should be amazed. And then I think we should be cultivating thanks in our lives. Maybe this is something you can do at the start of your, your year. You spend time in God's word day by day, perhaps. Maybe make a habit of just a few times writing something down. I am thankful for this, for this, for this. Go into scripture every time you read something new. Turn it back to God in thanks before we go to him with the request. He does want us to request. He is our loving father who will meet our needs. But let us be a people who are overflowing with thanks. Let us come back again and again and again to the cross of Christ. Let us... Dwell upon it. Let us pray about it. Let us sing about it. As we share the Lord's Supper, let us remind ourselves as we eat and drink 
that it is Christ's life that sustains us. Brothers and sisters, what a great God we have. What a wonderful King we serve. We have so much to be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy to us. You have sent your Son, our King, the Lord Jesus, to live, to serve, to die and to rise again, to wash us clean and to bring us home to you. And Father, you have blessed us with health, with opportunity, with beauty, with relationships, with so many good things. Father, never let us be ungrateful. Father, we ask this morning that you would stir us to see just how good you have been to us. And that, Father, by your spirit, you would work in our hearts that we might overflow with praise. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and King, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.